Welcome to the New Testament Review, where we usually review classic works of New Testament scholarship. But this week we have a very special episode where we're going to do a preview of the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting in Denver. Every year, 10,000 Bible nerds alongside scholars of other religious traditions descend on one city (laughs) for a weekend of overpriced books, open bar receptions, (laughs) and long, long papers. It is so fun and we love it. <laughs> it's it's better than Christmas. Yeah, it is, I spend all year looking forward to this. This is like Halloween and Christmas and Thanksgiving all rolled in together for one for me. So Laura and I are both giving papers this year and we thought we'd Yay. just give you a little taste of what we're talking about and then also talk about the papers we're most looking forward to seeing. So I'm presenting Monday morning, which is not my favorite time slot, in the New Testament textual criticism panel. And my paper is called Unripe Figs in Luke 19, Ishodad's Diatessaron and the Original Language of Tatian's Gospel. So, a little bit of background. Tatian wrote a gospel harmony, a harmony of the four gospels and some extra canonical traditions in the late 2nd century. And we don't have any copies of this gospel. There's a big debate in our little subfield over the original language Tatian wrote the thing in. Almost all of our reception history for this gospel is in Syriac, but the only other work we have surviving from Tatian, the oration to the Greeks, is written in Greek. So I'm looking at one particular word, the word for sycamore, and there is an incredibly uninteresting textual variant in the Greek, the difference between an omicron in the more part of the word and an omega, um, a short o and a long o. What makes this interesting is people in antiquity didn't really know what a sycamore was, The majority of patristic interpreters thought sycamore was some special kind of fig tree. And so when people came to translate this into Syriac, they translated the separate parts of this word. Sick is the word for fig, and more, depending on how you spell it, is either stupid, moros, we get moron from it, or berries. And if you look at the Syriac tradition, all of the Gospels go with one translation, and the witnesses to Tatian's Gospel go with another. And I'm looking at what this might tell us about the circulation of Tatian's gospel. I'm arguing that it's circulated in Greek for a lot longer than previous scholars have supposed, and what it might tell us about the language in which Tatian composed it. I'm arguing that he wrote in Greek, not in Syriac. Okay, yeah, so I am speaking at a joint panel this year between the Women in the Biblical World section and the Healthcare and Disability in the Ancient World section. I am speaking on Mark 13 and the Logion that says that the destruction of Jerusalem or what a, um, whatever apocalyptic event is envisioned there, there's a few different reconstructions of that, why it will be particularly traumatic for pregnant women and nursing women. Historically, commentaries have taken this sort of just as a general statement of how this event will be particularly awful for people who are uh, physically limited and aren't able to travel quickly or aren't able to run. And what I argue is that the idea that women are physically limited or unable to do certain things when they're pregnant, like this is honestly kind of a social construction. In the first century, Most women would have been able to, would have been expected to work throughout their pregnancies. So my question is, is there a different kind of vulnerability that might be envisioned here? And what does this tell us about uh, reconstructing the the event envisioned in Mark 13? I'm particularly interested in the idea that in the first century, in a lot of um, and in a lot of uh, purity-centric cultures or like, cultures with really strong senses of of social roles, uh, pregnant nursing women are often portrayed as these very like liminal figures 
who are vulnerable in ways that aren't really reducible to physical uh, elements that, you know, certain uh, like emotional upheavals or particularly certain cultic rituals can have uh, negative effects on them. So what I'm arguing is that this seems to be evidence that A.Y. Collins' reconstruction of the situation in Mark 13, that the anxiety is about a uh, desecrating statue being built in, uh, in, in the temple that God would need to destroy. It's this kind of sacrilege or this kind of uh, sacrilegious action would have a particularly negative impact on, on nursing women and pregnant women and could cause miscarriage or failure to lactate. Cool. Yeah. I have to give a little shout out here to my colleague, Adam Booth, who will also be speaking in this panel, fellow Duke student. He will be giving a paper on 1 Timothy 2, the somewhat puzzling passage about women being saved through childbearing. And uh, he's talking about ancient conceptions of childbearing and health and whether or not this uh, this letter is commenting on those debates in some sense. We must get Adam on this show. Yeah, we really do. It's a crying shame we haven't done it yet. So one of the papers I'm really looking forward to is Mark Goodacre's Why Not Matthew's Use of Luke. Within people who rightly don't believe in Q, <laughs> there is a recent and, to my mind, somewhat disturbing faction of folks who want to argue that Matthew used Luke. This includes Alan Garrow and, most recently, Richard Bauckham. This so perfectly encapsulates my feelings towards Richard Bauckham's scholarship. The man is gifted with brilliant insights. No question about that. He anticipated one of the arguments that I'm making in my dissertation um, in a Little Red article. Um, at the same time... <sighs> <laughs> so anyways... We so, should probably post the our Bauckham episode after this one to make yeah. up for that. <laughs> yes, we should. Uh, a really important piece of a his. A very important piece. Um, yeah. On gospel audiences. Mm -hmm. um, Mark's presentation is laying out why almost all scholars have believed that Luke must have used Matthew and the other way and not the other way around. At some point we're going to post our editorial fatigue, fatigue in the synoptics episode with Mark Kadaker, and that contains one such argument. And here Mark is expanding on that and giving more arguments for that direction of dependence. Yeah, there's a panel I'm really looking forward to. Um, I've spoken before in the Jewish Christianity and Christian Judaism section before. Uh, and there's a really, really timely and uh, really exciting panel this year on um, early Jewish-Christian relations, particularly Jewish-Christian violence. And uh, this is something that's really important to the research I've been doing lately. Uh, my dissertation is on uh, the audience of Matthew's Gospel, uh, their ethnicity, and how they might have related to the larger Jewish world uh, in the Gentile world. And it, something that I think is really under-discussed is the possibility that um, early churches' relationships with uh, with their Jewish neighbors and vice versa could have been characterized by outright violence and not just hostility or, you know, angry letters to each other. And I'm really excited that there's, there's going to be a panel talking about this. Andrew Higgin, Higginbotham has a paper on um, the use of corporal punishment in response to incorrect halakha in the Talmud, which I'm really looking forward to. And then right up our street, uh, John Campen has an article on, on the Gospel of Matthew and anti-Semitism that he'll be presenting, which, again, I'm really looking forward to seeing. James Barker, in the same panel as Mark Goodacre, actually, is giving a paper called The Proliferation of Gospels and the Intentions of Subsequent Evangelists. Ooh. And this is the topic of my dissertation. And James Barker is a friend. And James Barker is wrong. <laughs> so I'm really, really looking forward to uh, catching this paper. The debate is whether 
gospel authors. So Matthew sits down to compose his gospel, and he pulls over 600 of the 660 verses from Mark, nearly verbatim. What did he think he was doing? How did he expect his gospel to relate to Mark's? Was he trying to replace it? Was he supplementing it? Was he just writing for a completely independent community? These are the questions that keep me up at night, and I'm glad to see other people addressing them. There's another paper I'm really looking forward to by uh, Hojin Nam on uh, the Great Commission and who the uh, intended the intended targets are for the for the Great Commission when Jesus says to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. What exactly is being envisioned here? Is the goal here to, is there some sense that, that the goal is to create proselytes to Judaism or that, that they would be Torah obedient? Um, or are these righteous Gentiles? Or does this envision the construction of an actual church? Obviously, you know, the way that later Christians read this has been the idea that this is the founding of the church and the missionary movement to that. But, you know, there's a lot of tension in uh, Matthew's gospel about what exactly Matthew expects of converts and whether or not they would practice their religion much the way that Jews practice theirs, just with the messianic element of Jesus involved. So, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one and seeing how he, uh, how he squares that circle. It's pretty important for people who are interested in Matthew's audience. Okay, rapid fire. Just the titles of papers we're interested in. Eric van den Eichel, Faithfulness or a Flamethrower? Question mark. The Judgment and Redemption of Salome in the Proto-Evangelium of James. Hans Moskaki, gosh, I'm so sorry, Hans. I met you in Scotland and you're a nice guy. The paper title is Jesus, the Scapegoat of Yom Kippur in Matthew 27, 27 to 31. Stephen Carlson, Papias the Anti-Marcionite? Question mark. Christopher A. Frillingos, Blood into Stone, Violent Sanctuary in Jewish Christianity in the Proto-Evangelium of James. Jeremiah Coogan. Eusebius of Caesarea, Historiography, and the Gospels. Uh, Andrew Remington Riera, Tertium Genus or Dyadic Unity, Ecclesiology and Soteriology in Ephesians. <laughs> and then the Westar Institute is doing a whole panel in honor of the scholarship of Melissa Harl Selu. And Melissa, Dr. Selu, was my undergraduate advisor at the University of Minnesota, to whom I owe my knowledge of Coptic and sort of my whole interest in the field. So I'll definitely be attending that and looking forward to celebrating her scholarship. Uh, Julie Newberry, Joy in the Luke and Infancy Narrative, The Emotional Overtones of Zechariah's Speechlessness. We're so excited to see all of you. And um, if you see one of us running around, uh, please stop us and say hi. I'm the tall, gangly guy who sounds like Kermit the Frog underwater. I'm the short brunette next to him. (laughs) (laughs) Hope to see you there. All right, take care. (laughs) 